0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Fossa podcast. We're the Fossa engineering team and we're here to discuss life at an early stage startup through an engineering lens. And today I'm actually joined by two members of our customer success team, Steven and Carlos. So Carlos, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, how long you've been at
1: Fossa, stuff like that. Hey, my name is Carlos Sean. I've been with Fossa for almost six years now. One of the folks that joined early on in around 2017, I, I think. It's been a great journey and learned a lot, both in terms of working with developers and engineers and setting up and getting Fossa spun up. And
2: Steven? Yeah, hi, I'm Steven. I've served in the a variety of technical and customer-facing roles at startups and big old enterprise companies alike. I joined the Fossa team just about a year ago uh, as a customer success manager, and it's been a great adventure working with the whole team Got a lot of amazing colleagues and a lot of fabulous customers.
0: Cool. Well, in case you haven't heard of FOSS before, we are a company that helps you manage your open source dependencies. You can analyze your code, find out what dependencies are in it, the licenses they have, the vulnerabilities, and compare them against policies that you define. Today we're going to be talking about customer success and our journey with it because. We've learned a lot over the past few years and how we approach our customer success, and we think it could be interesting. I think it could be really interesting as well to start with our origin story. So can, one of you guys tell me about how customer success started here at Fssa?
1: <laughs> I can take that. This is Carlos. For FASA, we started out, you know not really knowing um, what customer success meant early on, so when we first built out our team and hired some of our first people were just like, you know, who do we know in our network that's smart, that can work with people and ask great questions. And that's kind of how we built our original team. We just found folks that are relationship focused and just asked really great questions and got them onto the team to work with our customers. After a few years, what we found in um, some of our customer engagements that there were some pain points that were troubling. And so we kind of started Really rethinking our customer success program with the customer in mind and who we were talking to on a day in, day out basis. And so we ended up making changes in our uh, customer success process, which uh, we're really glad we pivoted towards uh, today.
0: Uh, What was it like building the first customer success team at Fawcett? Did you, what was something you didn't expect from it as well?
1: When I think back about building a customer success team, like most, I think most folks would tell you, Hey, you just need someone like really great to work with the client and answer questions and someone who's smart that just asks like really great questions. What we didn't really expect is when you're working in the developer engineering ecosystem, how nuanced the technical knowledge might be. And so when you're first customer success person, you kind of expect them to do everything. You expect them to handle renewals, paperwork process. You expect them to do relationship management. You also expect them to do support and help customers onboard through like program management and change management. That's actually ends up being five jobs all in one when you're early on. And I think when you're a startup too, you kind of want that uh, person, you know, a really well-rounded player to be able to do all those jobs, you know, whether it's like support, or technical questions or product-related things. You want them to be able to do everything. And that well-rounded athlete was really hard to find surprisingly in the beginning because you also don't have that much money. You're trying to find someone and hire someone who's just like excited about the mission and the vision of the company and really likes the culture here. And you usually only have budget for that first person. So making that first critical hire is pretty crucial. And I don't think we really put that much thought into it in hindsight. Um, maybe we should have put, put more into it as well in terms of what that person looks like. But I think um, we've evolved a lot and learned a lot along the journey. And you know every startup, I think it's kind of a learning process, uh, which is part of the fun in uh, building a company from the ground
2: zero. You know, building a little bit on, on what you were saying, Carlos, too, one of, uh, something I've experienced previously at other startups is that you, you hit this inflection point. Where you know that you have to staff up and you know that you have to kind of get your, your organization to the next level to be able to support the business that you're, you're bringing in. And, um, I think sometimes you can hire the right people, but if you don't have the right, uh, the right structure and the right organization and the right mindset across the company, then that sometimes does not, uh, deliver results. So one of the things I think we've been doing right is that we are also, you know, in parallel to finding great people is that we're also building that that customer success organization and the mindset across, across the company as well. And not just keeping it to like a specialized practice. Do you think
0: the approach that you should be taking there has to like vary over time? Do you think the way we approach customer success today, you know, is clearly not going to be feasible for five or 10 people, but when, when do you hit that point when it becomes reasonable to start throwing this bigger structure into your customer success.
1: Yeah, it takes a little bit more foresight because usually the easy way to reverse into it is seeing how much revenue do you have or how many number of clients do you have? And then you kind of see like how much how much does that equate to man hours? And then how many people do you need staff beyond that? I think the problem with using that model we've seen with other folks is You might understaff because if you're accelerating or growing really rapidly, you might end up having less people or not the right people. So I think part of it is like you kind of have to think about forward looking in within the next 24 months. If you do hit your goals, um, how would that actually look like? And I think that's where you can maybe try to be a little bit more predictable in your hiring and um, kind of the structure of the people. However, I know it's really hard. Like some folks overstaff during This economy currently today, um, when we're back in 2020, folks were growing really fast. So 2021, everyone went out on a hiring spree and overhired the amount of people. So you have to kind of think about the economy, like the greater macro economy and also your business. Are people still spending the right amount? Are you hitting the right revenue numbers? And can that current structure of the team grow with it? Or do you actually need more people or you can get more productivity with the same people and maybe work a little smarter? Sometimes I think just throwing people at it doesn't really solve your problem because maybe there's some underlying core problems. Like maybe there's issues with the product. Maybe you need more partners to help with uh, servicing the customer so they can get more value. It doesn't have to be, the structure doesn't have to be internal. You could also look at like cross-functionally, how do you partner with folks to, you know, just get your team higher bandwidth. And um, in a smarter capacity. Capacity planning is a really hard topic, though.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point you bring up, though. Uh, A lot of problems. Of course, you can always throw more people at it, but that doesn't necessarily solve the problems. It just makes it impact more people. But when you take the time to sort of filter them out, to prioritize what you need to be working on, it gives you a lot more freedom. And I think our company does a really good job of building that into its culture. We're a pretty lean team.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the dream for me was and kind of why we decided to build our customer success team the way we did. The dream has always been, you know, we're servicing developers. So a lot of our folks should be able to speak in developer terms if possible or close to it. And so a lot of the folks that we end up hiring, uh, we really skewed towards technical acumen. How technical were they? Can they actually go in a little bit deeper? Do they understand API uh, protocols and things like that? We realized that that was really important, like just being able to navigate the command line, um, basic things like run like a curl script. Surprisingly, like I think folks that sometimes claim they're technical uh, run into those issues and you have to... Handhold them during customers' calls, and what we found, the customer success team is kind of a conduit to the engineering and product team, especially when they they run into bumps or hurdles during onboarding or during the usage of Fossa. And so, for us, like having someone in the front lines that can actually filter a lot of the noise and translate that information to the engineering and product team is really critical.
2: We we have somewhat shifted our approach here too, as well, because we're we're previously. You had one person wearing all those hats, doing the relations, post-sales relationship management, as well as all the technical support and you know uh, integration support. And you know, we recently we've broken that role out into a customer success manager and a customer success engineer, so that respectively, we have one person who's dedicated primarily to the day-to-day uh, project managing the, the customer engagement and that whole life cycle, and then with a dedicated technical resource to be able to really get into the weeds on these issues and. That's been very, very effective so far, I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen other organizations where they structure a customer success engineer as both a pre-sales engineer and a post-sales engineer. So certain organizations do that, but it also limits the amount of capacity that they can handle. um, And it also changes the incentive model a little bit. Uh, Traditionally, pre-sales engineers are more structured towards trying to close the deal, trying to help make sure the customer gets the proof of concept you know, then passes the ball over to the customer engineer who's on the more traditionally on the post-sales side or customer success side. So there's different structures that you can make it, I think, for different startups or different organizations. They just want to consider, really think through like the customer journey and the customer touch point, and what can work now at your current like revenue or current scale of customers and then kind of adapt and change it as you keep growing. That's fair
0: what was some of the good decisions you made where you look back and you're like, hey, we did this at just the right time. This was what we needed to grow and it helped
1: lift us. Ooh, I think it was a good decision and also maybe a questionable decision. As in some cases, we did shared Slack channels pretty early as a adopter. Um, when I think before they even released like, The Connect Slack, we already had shared Slack channels. We had a community group even way before that. uh, Before people really even did those motions and we would use those as like catalyst points both for uh, pre-sales and post-sales. So once customers start onboarding, we use that as like a means and I think it made customers feel like they're an extension of, we were an extension of their team. And I think that was really powerful. However, the struggle with that is because they felt like we were an extension of their team, there was constantly a lot of chatter on the the shared Slack channels. And sometimes it became really hard to track those issues. But I think the warmth that it gave to the customer made them really happy with the experience overall. And um, I think that's something that we did really well early on. And I do recommend organizations to do that, like whether using Discord or Slack or even Microsoft teams is doing shared channels with your customers, just especially in this remote environment is pretty powerful.
0: So just make your customers feel heard, like they're part of the process and not just submitting a ticket to get something fixed and never hearing back about it.
1: Yeah. Cause essentially when customers are buying software, no matter what type of software it is, they trust you as an extension of their business. And so they want to make sure that you're reliable and that, you know, the folks on the other side are almost like teammates, that when you say you're going to do something that you're actually going to act on it.
2: One of the uh, advantages of taking this kind of partnership model too, is that we we have more opportunities to serve in a, a, let's say an advisory capacity on non-technical issues specifically. So, you know, a fair number of our customers, they understand the need, the importance of open source compliance. And risk management, but they don't necessarily have the deep in-house expertise to understand what to make of all the of all the data we're, uh, we're we're surfacing to them. So, one of the things we we can do with our the way we're structured is we can spend more time working with the non-technical stakeholders and the legal and compliance uh, professionals, for example, to help them develop that expertise in-house. But you can really only do that if if you already kind of established that kind of partnership or, you know, a relationship with the customers because they trust you to, to advise them.
0: How do you guys sort of set expectations for customers when you're uh, initiating a relationship after everything has gone through with sales and you're starting the customer success journey with
2: them? Well, I I think it starts with coming to an agreement on what constitutes value to the customer, right? So the first, the very first thing is we need something to compare how we're doing against, you know, what was expected, so so that has to come from the customer themselves. So we, you know, there's there's a fair amount of discussion early on in the engagement to really establish those success, success metrics. We we have a general idea about what the value of our product is, right? And that's our go-to-market, and we're happy to talk about it. But we need the customer to be able to express what that how that translates to their own requirements, and then and then measure against that, not against what we think is best for them. Even though sometimes we will, you know, make suggestions and help guide. Guide them to a more successful uh, destination. Yeah,
0: when you're defining those metrics, you mentioned they do need to come from the customer, sort of. But is there just going to be a single set of metrics, or are you measuring the metrics differently for different stakeholders in the process? How are you helping to display the value that you're providing to the various sets of stakeholders?
2: Well, that's 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 a challenge. You know, again, we we do have a number of different user kind of personas, right? So we have systems integrators, we have, you know, we have DevOps, we have developers, we have security and compliance experts, and, you know, uh, they all need, they all have their own perspective on what value means to them. And so what we need to do is to be able to hold both of those things in our minds at all times is the over, the overall value that we're providing to the customer, right? And that we've agreed on, and then also be able to translate that and deliver that to in a more granular way to the different stakeholders. So it's, it's, it's basically, um, I would say it's kind of a juggling act, but there is kind of a holistic view. you like, if you, if you really think about this stuff and map it out, there is, all these things are related. It's not, um, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think, um, I don't know, I'm seeing this across the board for a lot of software companies and especially during this mass exodus of like, get rid of vendors that are not, you know, providing value is what the CFO office is going towards. And so that's been really funny to see because you're seeing all these like random churn and cancellations for these software companies. And part of it is like when those go, go, go times, folks just bought whatever software and then it sometimes became shelfware. And I think the to observe value is to really think about what is that key m- moment of insight and what decisions are they looking to make? What like business, core business problems is actually solved uh, for the client. And so, for us, like for instance, like some of our customers are like, oh, I need really need to generate this report to fulfill the S bomb requirements from the government, or hey, I really need to do the cyber like vulnerability management so we can satisfy our SOC two requirements and keep our customers safe. Um, those are like kind of critical, I'd say, missions within a company. And so, for us, it's just making sure that we align closely to those um, that are part of critical workflow streams for a company.
0: Should. People who are starting out their first customer success team, like you mentioned a few workflows that are something we see come up repeatedly, say doing a vulnerability audit on a piece of software or a license compliance audit. Do you think there's benefit in coming up with runbooks to systematize these processes? That way you can just do them easily, regardless of the context?
1: Yeah. So what I found that's been interesting when we've been doing this is sometimes people take run books and then they don't really use it. It's almost like when you, I think of the traditional ways, like I go to, I go sign up for a gym trainer and then they give me a playbook of all the stuff I'm supposed to do and then I don't do everything. I'm not gonna get the results that, I'm not gonna be able to run the marathon, I'm not gonna be able to do whatever physical activity that I wanna do um, just because I didn't actually use the playbook. So even sometimes when you get the playbook, people have to, I think for us as a CS team, and even for folks building their own one, you have to think about who the audience is and how do they actually learn. So let's take a step back. For instance, like when you went to school, like the way you learn might be more audit like through audio, or it might be like auditory, it might be visual, it might be, you know, written and like comprehension. So I think thinking about the way your audience learns um, might be different. Like with some organizations, I know we've done like global webinars where we did like a video learning series versus we did a reading series and then, or we gave them examples of how other teams in their company were using uh, Fossa. And so really thinking about the way your customer and audience learns and um, builds that habit loop is really critical. Cause at the end of it, you're trying to get the customer to keep coming back to and have that first insight moment uh, with your product. And so the run book is a catalyst to actually do that if if you're gonna build something like it, but it's not the end all beyond. All, and you have to think about is it is it through a long word doc? Is it through a presentation? Is it yeah, just think about the form of delivery. There's multiple forms of delivery.
2: I, I and I've had mixed success with generic run books and some surprising success with very short focused video clips. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words, so a video is worth at least 24,000 words per frame. So (laughs) yeah, that's, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, and also uh, running training sessions with a wider group and then recording those to, for the customer to share internally. Those are a little bit harder to follow because you don't have a document to look at. So it's, you know, it, it it requires some, uh, some curation on the customer side to make sure it's organized. Uh, But, but those, those do seem to be uh, very effective and, and a more efficient use of everybody's time in training and education. What is a
0: big goal to set when you're starting your first CS team, when you're starting that experiment, how do you say, this is success for us? This is what our team should be doing a year from
1: now. Yeah. It depends if you're tying to like, there's the tactical things and then there's the higher level Stuff um, which becomes really hard, because if you if you come, I guess if we go from bottom up, so let's start with the CSM. The CSM at the end of the day cares that their customers just happy. Happy is a very vague inter- definition, um, and then every team kind of defines what happy means. It's like, is it an MPS score? <laughs> is it an MPS score? Is it a um, you know they're signing in every day? Is the uh, you know are they generating reports every day? Like what is that? definition of happy for a CSM is a lot different versus what the business goals are coming from a top-down approach is what are the you know what are the net retention numbers what's the gross retention number what is like like is there like a huge like net dollar retention number that we're measuring it up against these become like higher level metrics that the org is caring about are we expanding within our customer base those are some of the things that I think top down folks are looking at is like these key business metrics, but some of those key business metrics are more of a lagging indicator than a leading indicator. So I think part of it is you have to, you have to look at it from different angles. I think the ways that at least mental framework for me is always kind of the engineering, like how do we reduce like reduction? Like I have a big feature I'm trying to build. How do I reduce it down to micro segments and then build up towards it? So, if your big audacious goal and this macro goal is like make like make lots of money and like make sure your customers are happy, like how do you reduce down to to micro micro actions that you can take and then kind of reverse into it? I would say, but
2: you know, to your comment about the classic success metrics being more you know like trailing indicators, like (laughs) uh, we're fairly high touch in our approach. We we try to establish. At least a monthly cadence of standups, and with some depending on where a customer is in their journey, you know that could be a weekly a weekly standup as needed, just to make sure that you know that we're not missing anything that we might if we, you know, only peeked in every once a quarter.
1: Yeah. And
2: Carlos, you actually mentioned a minute ago
0: as well NPS scores as a metric. Yeah. Uh, that's something we do here at Fasa. We use NPS scores and. Steven's giving me thumbs down right now, but we've learned a lot about NPS scores and how we approach using them here at Fossa. Yeah. So can you guys tell me a little bit about what, what has happened with that
1: over the last year? Yeah, NPS scores are really hard. When we first start NPS score, we collect NPS score from every single type of customer, free customers to small customers to enterprise customers, and we got a lot of noise. And then I think the hard thing about NPS too is if someone fills out the number and doesn't give you more information, it's really hard to figure out what actually went wrong. There's a lot of digging that has to start happening right after that. And so for us, we started adding a little bit more questions after someone fills that score. Ideally they would be able to give us more information of like what actually went wrong. Why did they feel this way or what actually went well and why did they feel this way? I think looking at NPS score by segments is really interesting. Looking at by your enterprise customers and self-serve customers and free customers by segments is really interesting. Looking at NPS cut NPS also by your uh, personas are really interesting. So is this person your champion? Is this person your executive sponsor? Um, Because measuring NPS is different. I think from a IC perspective, a functional manager perspective and an exec perspective, if I were to go measure NPS from an IC, they ex- they're thinking more, hey, is the functions that I really rely on working? Is the scan actually scanning? Then from a manager perspective, they're saying, hey, is the reports that I expect, am I getting those reports and getting them in a timely manner with good quality data? And then from an executive standpoint is, is this solving my larger business goal? Am I getting value from this vendor relationship? Those are three different types of NPS. So That's really hard. And sometimes, like from a lot of clients, they don't actually, not all of them actually give you that input. So it's really difficult to measure. Um, But ideally, like if folks are willing to give you that information, it's super invaluable, especially if they're willing to give you also the context related to what they're scoring. Sorry, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm happy to dive in more, but yeah. No, you're good. That was
0: great. Okay. What are some other ways you can sort of gauge how happy a customer is with your product? Like not just the metrics, because of course, yeah, their usage is important, but the relationship itself.
2: You can ask them, you know, that's, you know, you you ask them, how's everything going? You know, what are we, are we working for you? What can we be doing better? Uh, And, you know, um, that's for me, you know, I, I gave the thumbs down for NPS because I'll temper my criticism a little bit. But I was a little concerned when we started rolling that out that we'd be, take the numbers too literally and treat them as like legitimate quantif- quantitative data, which they're really not. They're they're indicators of something. They're signals. But the comments have been actually very valuable. Sometimes hilarious, sometimes depressing, and sometimes really insightful and valuable. And so I think that's for me that's where the value of um, NPS comes because it's closest to what I would do in a direct conversation with the customer. I'd say, listen. Tell me, you know, you know, and and you know, part of part of my role and the role of customer success is to build that trust where a customer can actually tell you if if there's something that's not working for them and that they feel comfortable that they can do that and that they're going to be heard.
1: Yeah, And my my other thing with NPS too is like, who's consuming the NPS data from our side, from you know, from the organization side, because. The goal of like product and engineering when they consume MPS is they always think about, is this a functional or product-related item that's missing? And then from a customer CSM relationship, it's more like, is there something here that we did, maybe we misstepped or something from a relationship standpoint? So I think sometimes parsing the information of, is this a relationship issue? Is this a like is it solvable through a relationship or is it solvable via product changes or product updates or better documentation like filtering, filtering all the input into the right business parts is also a issue that becomes like really hard. So you have a lot of people looking at these NPS stuff and you know who's who's the person that's going to take ownership? Is it product engineering support or the CSM? And that sometimes gets a little bit difficult, especially as you scale. Yeah.
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because I was already planning to talk about customer success isn't just a single team, especially here at FASA. I can't speak for other companies. This is my first tech job. But at FASA, there's a very strong interaction, inter-team cooperation where customer success is never just working with customer success. They're working with support. They're working with engineering. We're constantly meeting with product. And there's a focus on channeling the customer's voice into the ears of the people who can take action on that.
1: Yeah, I think for us, like my main thing is we care. (laughs) We care a lot. And um, Mm -hmm. I think think the good thing here is we care also about each other and making sure each other, we're all successful. And so we want to help as much as possible. I think that's a main mantra is like, how do we help? the customer and also how do we help each other and so i think we tie really closely but Stephen can
2: probably speak more about it as well yeah i agree i mean in fact that's that's one of the cornerstones of capital c capital s customer success is that it's not just the job of one team but that it's the idea that you need to really develop that mindset across the organization and to your you know to your point there that that idea of amplifying the voice of the customer is really important and not only that but as you said making sure that gets to the right people in the right form that that they can actually translate that into improvements to our products and and, and uh, processes, you know? And I think that's, that's a piece that sometimes is missing that, yeah, everybody knows what the customers are saying, but there's no clear way to, to turn that into, uh, into happiness. And so I think we're, we're on the the right track for that in the way that we're, we're building out the team now. Yeah. How can other companies
0: or even departments, how can they work on, Increasing the cooperation between their teams to start achieving this?
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, I think it's a cultural perspective. I think the trouble that I've seen sometimes is when you're at an organization that's struggling, people sometimes end up then like pointing fingers at each other. Oh, it's not my fault. It's this other team's fault. Oh, it's not my fault. It's this other team's fault. And I think you have to nip that really early and create a cultural value that you don't, it's not about blaming other folk people. It's about taking ownership and also looking at things in a pragmatic and objective standpoint. Like where does this problem arise? And like, how do we all collectively work together to solve this? And let's not try to point fingers or blame anyone. I think that's like a really huge like value that you have to build into the company culture to really make things happen. Because I've seen this at other organizations, whether larger or smaller, where when shit hits the fan, they start, pointing at the other person. And it's like, no, that's not the right way to do it. It's like, if you see a problem and you can't solve it, ask for help instead of pointing at the other person. Like, hey, can I get help on how to solve this and learn how to solve this? And with that type of curiosity and that type of attitude, I think that builds a lot stronger of a company and people are more willing to work with each other because they don't feel like they're being blamed. I think the blaming mentality really breaks down Breaks down like team culture and like really hurts the environment for folks to f- feel that they can speak freely.
2: And you know that can happen among teams even where everybody's really nice. And I think you know they, they didn't start out that way, but it's like you said when the heat is on, right? If if you don't have the structure to support the kind of cross functional work and communication and transparency that you need, then that that can really happen. People, you know, it creates uncertainty, uh, and then people start uh, start getting into kind of a defensive mode. So I think one of the things that we're doing right is that we've. We've always worked very collaboratively and cross-functionally, but we've put a lot more process around that in the form of regular meetings and, um, you know, um, transparency, uh, with things like the, um, the engineering backlog and product and the product roadmap, both internally and externally. So I think that again, that builds trust and that really it turns down the, uh, it turns down the temperature when things get rough and so that people can really focus on continuing to work together. Externally is a
0: huge point there as well. We talked already about how important it is to develop that relationship with your customer and make them feel like they're a part of the process. You really have to just be transparent with your customers about the timelines, what's going on. If there are delays, explain what's going on. Keep that open dialogue with your customer. That's how you keep them happy. Everyone's most, (laughs) most engineers our understanding of the fact that software development takes time and there's always unexpected roadblocks. (laughs) But as long as you communicate that instead of just keeping them in the dark, they'll probably be understanding. All right. Is there anything else you have? Any tips, any quick tricks, any life lessons for people who are starting their customer success journey or even already far into it. Is there any last advice you guys want to give them?
1: Oh man. My biggest thing would be if you're a developer engineering focused company, really build amazing docs. Um, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I think like really great docs and them. I think also from an API ground up, approach is definitely like the dream scenario because you never know what your customers want it's really hard sometimes to predict like five years ahead of what your customers want so thinking about that structurally early on is like really critical and then keeping your docs dynamic and updated often is just going to save you a lot more time and make your future like employees and everyone happier. So I know that's a big focus for us at FOSA. And I think personally, wish I invested more into that earlier and that's on me, but yeah.
0: No matter what you think your customers are going to do with the API, an <laughs> enterprise is going to abuse it and do things mm-hmm. you never thought were possible with it. Document the API super well, even the parts you think customers aren't going to touch, if it's not going to break anything and a customer might be able to get a single bit of information from it that isn't anywhere else document it. You will that save sounds, yourself so much time.
2: It sounds suspiciously like you're speaking from experience there, sir. Um, I
0: don't no, know why I just get that
2: feeling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my last words would basically just be, um, you know, treat people with the respect and the honesty and the good humor with which you would like to be treated. Uh, above all else. Well... Also update your docs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think we talked about that on the last episode too. Just documentation culture. So important. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me. This was a great episode and I think we covered a lot of really good topics and advice for people. If anyone's interested in learning more about what we do, please feel free to check out our website, Fossa.com, or find us on LinkedIn.
2: Wonderful. Thank you.
1: Thank you.